From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Why, thank you for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to uh, all of you tuning in on uh, one of our affiliate stations. Those of you streaming us on YouTube, please take a moment and uh, reg- or subscribe to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Also, uh, those of you listening via the podcast, TalkZone.com, and of course, those of you who listen in via the app, uh, The Conspiracy Show app. So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Nick Redfern is standing by, the uh, prolific and compelling Nick Redfern. His new book is 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. And uh, Nick uh, has put together a compendium of uh, fascinating and in many cases never-before-seen events involving all things UFO, really. Crop circles, dead aliens head by the U.S. military, men in black, black-eyed children, Radar-based UFO incidents, black helicopters, reptilians, uh, the chubacabra, uh, and much more. Uh, one for every day of the year. Uh, so today, for example, now this isn't in the book, but maybe it'll make uh, volume two. Uh, there was a UFO caught on camera in Mexico. It, it appears uh, to be coming out of the Colima volcano. Uh, I've tweeted the, uh, the story. Uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and click on that. There's a, a time-lapse video embedded in the story. And you can see this light way off in the distance across the uh, the cityscape. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Mexico City. I'm not sure uh, where exactly in Mexico it is. But the volcano is, is in the distance on the horizon. And this tiny speck is seen. And then it gets larger and larger. And as it comes towards the camera uh, over the city, uh, we see this intense intense ball of of light and uh, it's difficult to to tell how fast it's traveling because it's time lapse it's almost like a security type camera in other words it's taking a still every i don't know 20 30 seconds uh so it's very difficult to gauge the uh, the speed but uh, it goes whipping past the camera's position and uh, it's huge uh, that's not uh, you know that's not the moon uh the the flight pattern seems to be fairly um I don't know, stable, if you will. It doesn't appear to be a meteorite, although uh could be, don't know. You have a, a look at it and let me know uh, what you think it might be. So again, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and check it out and let me know what you think. All right, uh, very quickly before we get to Nick, it is uh, time for our What's in the Box segment and uh, our little remote viewing experiment. As I mentioned, the uh, the box has gone missing. It'll turn up, I'm sure. But in the meantime, let me, uh, for all of you listening at home, for those of you in studio, Ryan the intern, Albert, my story producer, and Ian in the next uh, room on the other side of the glass, focus your attention uh, to the surface of my desk on my right, here on uh, on the desk in studio in Liberty Village, 70 Jefferson Avenue, 70 Jefferson Avenue in Toronto, on my desk. Please focus your attention and uh, let me know what you think. Now, I'll, I'm going to continue to call it What's in the Box. That's the name of the segment, but it's not in the box tonight. And again, those of you who would like to uh, to play along at home, 
please use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. Hashtag TCS Remote. And uh, whoever comes closest, or reasonably close, rather, um, I will set you up with some wonderful Conspiracy Show swag from our online store at theconspiracyshow.com. All right. Those of you, of course, associated with the program, not eligible for our grand prize, however, you get the... Uh, the uh, the satisfaction of knowing that you are now a uh, a competent remote viewer. All right, Ian, on the other side of the glass, what do you think it is? Any thoughts? A, uh, a cloth of some sort. A cloth. Yeah. Any? Is there a color? Um, I don't see any color. No. No, he just sees cloth. All right. Uh, let's go over to uh, Ryan, the intern. Ryan. I, I just kind of. Uh Something popped up in my mind, a little, almost like a little spiky ball, something that made me look like a, a dragon fruit or, or a jack, something, something. Jack fruit or a dragon fruit. Wow, yeah. that's pretty specific. A mm-hmm. spiky ball, perhaps a dragon fruit. All right, and, uh, Elbert. Well, I feel stumped this week. I think, like, the Quebec City shooting puts a downer on everything. But, uh, I would guess, you know, maybe a can of tuna or a can of beans, maybe something in a tin can. Something in a tin can. All right. Uh, we'll do the reveal a little bit, uh, later, but, uh, you're, once again, sadly, way off the mark. All right. And, uh, the Quebec shooting Albert mentioned, yes, horrible, horrible shooting in Quebec City at a mosque. Uh, earlier reports, uh, that uh, up to five dead, although unconfirmed, two shooters, uh, both apparently in custody. And a number of individuals, again, we don't have a handle on the number yet, but injured. Horrible tragedy at a mosque in Quebec City. Uh, obviously, our thoughts and prayers with the uh, uh, the victims, our condolences to the victims' families, and our prayers to the uh, those injured. Uh, very shocking that this would take place. Again, a shooting in Quebec City at a mosque. And uh, this was apparently the same mosque last uh, summer, uh, I believe in June, uh, where... A, um, a pig's head had been placed on the steps. So um, not sure if this is related to that or not. Apparently the assailant was overheard shouting Alu Akbar. Uh, but again, these, this, these are all very early reports, and um, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get to the bottom of it before we say goodnight, or we'll know more anyway. All right, that being said, Let's uh, get to the uh, the main entree, shall we? Nick Redfern is uh, the author of 40 books on UFOs, Lake Monsters, the Roswell UFO Crash, Zombies, Hollywood Scandals, including Men in Black, Chubacabra Road Trip, The Bigfoot Book, and Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. He's appeared on many TV shows, including Fox News, BBC's Out of This World, The Sci-Fi Channel, Proof Positive, The History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets, Ancient Aliens, and UFO Hunters, the National Geographic Channel's uh, Paranatural and MSNBC's Countdown with Keith Olbermann. And um, his newest book, of course, is entitled 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. Nick Redfern, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Richard. How's it going? Very well. Uh, you know, it's amazing when you think of it that you can actually find uh, a, um, a report, a sighting, uh, for it to fill in every single day in a calendar year. Now, the years jump around, 1947 to 1952 and so forth, but you've got a report from Jan- for January 1, 2, 3, all the way to December 31st. I mean, how long did it take you to fill in all those holes, or was it relatively easy because there's so much out there? Yeah, it actually was quite easy because, I mean, you know, 
collectively, we've got thousands and thousands of UFO reports. Um, you know, so there, I mean, I, I did an estimate of, um, you know, I saw one particular place where it was estimated that ufology as a subject had sort of catalogued some like collectively like 25,000 reports. Now, if that's true, I don't know if it is, but if it, even if it's sort of 5,000, you know, you've only got to find 365. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's actually not that difficult. But what I wanted to do was not do 365 cases that everybody's already heard about and then thought, well, what's the point, you know? So um, apart from, you know, a few cases that famous ones you've got to put in, like Rendlesham Forest and Roswell right. and the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, you know, apart from sort of the, a few of the, the classics, what I wanted to do was to sort of um, give the reader, um, you know, a lot of cases that they wouldn't have seen before and just go with some very obscure ones, but also ones that are very interesting as well. Well, and, uh, and to, to wit, um, one that pops out immediately is uh, January 2nd. This was one that I was not aware of, and this was a UFO crash in Denver, Colorado, back in the early 50s. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, this, you know, when everybody thinks of, um, you know, crashed UFOs, inevitably they think of, of Roswell, and then there's sort of the uh, Roswell's little brother, the Kecksburg case in Pennsylvania from 65, and the Aztec story from New Mexico um, in 48. But, um, so, the, you know, there are a lot of stories like that out there, but there are some very lesser-known ones. And, um, yeah, this one that I'm talking about, um, basically sort of, it was a UFO sighting um, that began with various encounters involving, for example, military pilots and a commercial airline pilot. And the story was that in the early 1950s, uh, specifically January the 2nd, 52, um, a UFO came down uh, somewhere near Denver, Colorado, late one particular night. Um, although sightings have been going on throughout the day. And the object was tracked on radar by a number of um, military bases and also airports, and military uh, planes were scrambled to intercept these things, and, um, and nobody knew what this thing was. But the, the story basically revolves around this thing coming down um, sort of in a hilly country, a hilly part of um, the, the, the landscape outside of Denver, and uh, a quick military cordon put into place, and um, sort of the, the things we have here quite often about, you know, not just a cordon, but the recovery of some sort of object, and also the crew. But the, the story actually didn't surface until 2000, and we often find this in crashed UFO cases, that, that um, people are sort of very um, reticent often not to talk about these events until they feel, you know, comfortable in coming forward in, in old age, so to speak. Nick Redfern, author of uh, 365 Days of UFOs, a year of um, alien encounters. Now, um We'll take a time out, come back, and I want to talk about a case that you specifically were involved with in Puerto Rico back in the late 90s, and that has to do with chubacabras. We'll come back and discuss further with Nick Redfern right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Nick Redfern is with us. 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters, and uh, some of these date back to uh, the 1920s. Uh, others, far more recent, and some of them you were uh, involved uh, in the investigation. And one such, again, dates back to uh, January, I think it's the 19th. And uh, this was a, uh, you were on the trail of the Chubacabra in Puerto Rico. Tell us about that, Nick. Yeah, well, I've been to uh, Puerto Rico on, uh, on many occasions looking for the Chupacabra. Um, first time I went out there was in um, 2004, and the most recent time was uh, 2014. So it's sort of 10 years of going back and forth and, and investigating reports of this strange creature known as the Chupacabra. And when the reports first surfaced, um, people were describing this very strange creature that sort of ran around on two legs and had this sort of row of spikes down its head and neck and these bright red eyes. And what was interesting is that many of the locations where people were seeing the chupacabras on Puerto Rico uh, was the same locations where people were seeing UFOs. And one of the sort of hotspots for both was this massive rainforest on Puerto Rico called the El Yunque Rainforest. And that's where, as I said, a lot of the reports come from. Now, the the particular case you're talking about, ironically, um, I received this one the first time I went there. And this was with um, a team from the Sci-Fi Channel to make a, a show called Proof Positive. And this was the, the summer of um, 2004. We interviewed a woman who was actually out picking plantains, which is one of the sort of local delicacies on Puerto Rico, and she saw this uh, UFO land in a clearing in the rainforest, and it was described, it wasn't actually that big, um, sort of about 25 feet across, or thereabouts, and, um, but it was sort of like a classic flying saucer, you know, sort of perfect circle, silver in colour, and what was sort of really weird is that the the sighting um, of the UFO actually coincided uh, as the object landed, it coincided with this chupacabra-type animal charging across this open area as a doorway opened on the craft and essentially sort of bounded into the craft, which then shot away into the sky. Now, you know, it sounds sort of bizarre and over the top, but, um, you know, the witness came across as very, very credible and just, you know, didn't want any publicity other than, you know, she was happy to be interviewed, but she preferred um, that her face was sort of in shadow. Um, wasn't looking for money or anything like that. She just wanted to share the story of what she'd seen and came across as very, very credible, as I say. And um, But I get a lot of stories like that from Puerto Rico where the Chupacabra has been seen, you know, associated with UFO activity as well. Uh, we are, um, well, I guess in just a little less than a month, coming up on a, a pretty significant uh, history um, uh, anniversary uh, in ufology, and that's the the Battle of Los Angeles. It started mm-hmm. February uh, the twenty fourth, nineteen forty two. Of course, uh, Southern California, uh, and uh, you know, keeping in mind this is um, uh, two and a half months. Uh, let's say no, a little. Well, just after Pearl Harbor, of course, in uh, December of 1941. So for those not familiar with the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, February 24th, 1942, what happened? Well, yeah, I mean, this was sort of a, you know, an interesting time in, you know, American history because, as you say, it was only a couple of months after, (coughs) excuse me, after Pearl Harbor was bombed, which sort of set 
um, shockwaves throughout the the country, which quite understandably as well. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, were sort of on edge. Um, you know, when America entered the war, worried about other attacks. And certainly, the the one time other than Pearl Harbor itself that really sort of had people on an edge, so to speak, were the events that occurred on the night of uh, the 24th and the 25th of February, 1942. Now, there's a reason why I sort of e include this case in the book, in a UFO book, is because although the initial thought was that when these strange lights and sort of objects were seen flying through the clouds over Los Angeles on the night in question, um, what was happening is that people were assuming that these things were um, Japanese fighter planes or bombers. You know, there was, there was no other alternative. The, the term back then, you know, UFOs had never even been contemplated on, same with flying saucers. You know, the, the phenomenon didn't kick off till 47. This was 42. Right, and they were expecting thought, an attack. They were, the naval, naval intelligence were mm -hmm. warning within 10 hours there could be an attack. That's right. And um, But what was really weird is that nobody ever really identified any of these things as looking like Japanese aircraft or any aircraft. Um, they, uh, for, for the most part, they were sort of within the clouds or at least partly in the clouds, which made difficulty seeing them. What was really weird, if, they, if it was a uh, sort of a Japanese squadron, is that, um, you know, there were no bullets used, um, no bombs used, you know, the city wasn't attacked. Um, but the um, the guys on the ground who were working this sort of um, ground-to-air um, uh, guns and so forth... anti-aircraft batteries, um, yeah. They, um, they were reporting that they could see these things, but they weren't damaging any of them. And what was really weird is that some of them were flying at extremely slow speeds, you know, almost to the point of speeds where an aircraft would stall. Now, what's interesting, and I relate this in the book, is that a lot of files on this event have been released through the Freedom Information Act, and they sort of tell a fascinating story of how throughout the evening and the early hours of the following morning, um, you know, the military was sort of up to its neck in trying to figure out what these things were and blast them out the sky, but with no luck at all. And so for all intents and purposes, they were UFOs. And um, as I said, it was never resolved or solved. Um, there was no damage done, no bombs dropped. So, you know, there's a lot of weird angles to it if it was the Japanese. And there's a lot of a big case can be made that actually wasn't the Japanese, which, of course, begs the question, who was it? Well, the, the anti-aircraft barriers on the ground, they were actually firing at these uh, yep. orbs, correct? Was there any damage as a result of the anti-aircraft fire? No, there actually wasn't. I mean, there were rumors and stories that, you know, some of the um, the crews thought they had had actually hit some of these objects. But again, you know, nothing came crashing down to the ground like, a you know, an intact aircraft or, you know, no wings were blown off and came crashing down, you know, in a Los Angeles street or anything like that. Um, as I said, it was just, it was so bizarre because whatever these things were, they were actually quite low, but they eluded every and any attempt, attempt to sort of blow them out of the sky. Just a quick departure from uh, from your book, 365 Days of UFOs. Uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we had uh, the CIA 
well, these 13 million uh, pages were ma- they were public, they were available, but you had to go down to College Park, Maryland, and, and actually get on the on the uh, the CIA server to access them. Um, I'm just wondering if you'd had a chance to look at any of the uh, the documents that are now available online pertaining to to UFOs, and, and what your thought uh, your thoughts were regarding the the, uh, the latest mm. intelligence dump. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that most of those CIA UFO files were actually released many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the good thing is that there's this sort of more openness with the files where, you know, there was a big press release and a big news statement, you know, coming from the CIA that, we, you know, this material is coming out there and it's far easily accessible. You know, sort of even as far back as like 10 years ago, you would have to... To get these, you know, you would have to write to the CIA and they would mail you paper copies, which would cost a lot of money, you know, for postage and um, photocopying, etc. But now, you know, we, we've got an easy, accessible place to go to where, you know, you can access them. Kind of like the FBI a couple of years ago, they created a really good um, website called The Vault, which um, lists, you know, thousands of different topics. Um, including all their UFO and paranormal files and things like this. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a good development. You know, it's, uh, it's demonstrating not just the, um, you know, the willingness to sort of share the material, but make it much easier for us to acquire this material and read it. So, um, but, you know, aside from the UFO stuff, I mean, a lot of the material had not been seen before. Or, as you said, it was just... It was just difficult to sort of have to, you know, travel to uh, an, an official archive and read the papers there, when now, you know, we can just see them online. Right. The, re- the remote viewing uh, stuff is pretty interesting about Yuri Geller and, and uh, Project Stargate down at Fort Meade and so forth. Uh, but it's you know, it's going to take a long while to sift through all of that material. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the remote viewing stuff, there is actually quite a bit of new material there, which... Uh, you know, the, the whole remote viewing program, which sort of really kicked off big time in the 70s, where, you know, um, people, were be, personnel were being trained to essentially psychically spy on potentially hostile nations. And, um, and what's interesting is that although in some cases the, you know, the operations worked, on other occasions they didn't. And even the guys who were skilled at doing this admitted that for whatever reason, even they didn't understand, it would be like a hit and miss thing. And of course, if you're dealing with sort of espionage and, you know, spying on on friendly nations, you don't want hit and miss. You want hit every time. You know, you you want to make sure your intelligence data is fully correct. Um, And so I think that may be one of the reasons why it was more sort of like a fallback um, uh, approach when every other approach had failed. You know, it's like um, if they couldn't find it through, um, you know, sort of having agents in the field or wiretaps, that kind of thing, then they would fall back on the remote viewing um, because it was perceived as being helpful, but it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't opening doors like, for example, regular espionage would. Right, I think I think they were embarrassed uh, when it, when word got out, and I think more than anything that had to do with their decision to sort of cancel uh, the, pro- the well, program. It's a lot like when the police 
when it gets word gets out that they, they were consulting with psychics to find a missing child or something. They're kind of it. it for them, it, it makes it look like they're desperate. Well, yeah, there is that angle, and I think that there's also the issue of they feel that I think sometimes they might feel that it's affecting their credibility. But if you read the files, there's absolutely no doubt that on some occasions, you know, th- these events did work. Oh, 100%. You know, yes. It was to the point where it was clearly beyond coincidence. And, um, and so I think for that reason, um, you know, they would have preferred the, the information to sort of remain hidden because, you know, then having to answer all the questions of why are you using psychics, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of it was sort of, you know, the sort of the public appearance of, you know, should we tell people we use psychics, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, Nick Redfern with us and his new book, 365 Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters. And um, this is another one that I had not heard of. Uh, This, you know, we talk about how people who witness uh, unidentified flying objects, they're often uh, left with a, you know, in a profound state of uh, wonder or even uh, stress, anxiety. Uh, I mean, I've I've talked to people who have seen these those huge triangular uh, craft uh, that are so large they've obliterated the night sky. And you talk to these people, they're practically in tears. They're so traumatized by seeing something like that, whatever it was. But occasionally, as you point out, uh, sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes a UFO encounter results in the witness's death. This goes back to March of 1946. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, this is an interesting one because, you know, 1946 was actually, you know, sort of uh, a year or so thereabouts before the entire UFO phenomenon itself actually began. Right. You know, and... Um, Kenneth Arnold in 47. Yeah. Um, you know, a significant one in terms of the fact that um, it essentially, you know, predated uh, the Kenneth Arnold famous sighting by, um, by one year. Um, it actually was sort of one of the most grizzly UFO cases and um, it involved a guy named Juan Prestes Filho and he lived in a little Brazilian village and he was uh, walking home late one night and kind of had that feeling that we all have from time to time that somebody's watching you or something's watching you. You know, you just kind of have that feeling, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck go up and you turn around and, and somebody is watching you. You know, we, we can all kind of do that even though we don't really know how or why and he had that feeling but rather than a person follow him as he looked as he turned back he saw this um light this um bright light in the sky hovering above him which as he turned um around it sort of bathed him in this um this powerful light you know almost like a like a spotlight kind of situation now almost immediately the story is that he felt his body suddenly heating up, you know, immediately. Um, and then it got sort of more disturbing where his skin started to peel as if he'd had sort of like a bad sunburn, you know, as if in the way you, your skin can peel off. Now, he got back home and within minutes, um, it wasn't just like his skin was flaking, but it was boiling, it was bubbling. Now, from there... Um, he was rushed to the local hospital by the family and reportedly as a as a strange and a sort of you know terrible as it sounds that he essentially started just melt away you know until the point where there was 
barely anything left, you know. Oh, my Lord. It's a case of scooping up what was left. Now, although, you know, people might say, well, this is just not possible, you know, it's like a friend of a friend tale. It actually isn't. Um, some of the hospital people actually came forward. Uh, one of them, a man named Arasi Gomide, uh, was actually on duty at the time and saw him when he was brought in and said, you know, it just looked like something had burned him with a like a localized directed weapon of some sort um and various other people from the hospital have come out as well so you know despite the sort of fantastic nature of it it, it does have sort of a, a a credible body of people who who supported the story gruesome uh, indeed all right that's from march 5th of 1946 just one of the entries in this cosmic calendar 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters. Nick Redfern, my guest, he stays with us. Hope you will, too. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. We'll get back to our conversation with Nick Redfern in just a moment. 365 days of UFOs. A year of alien encounters, and uh, I want to ask uh, Nick about something a little closer to home, uh, at least up here in Canada. Uh, we'll go out to Manitoba in 1967, May, I believe, of 67. And people talk about, you know, no physical evidence, no trace evidence of, of uh, UFOs. Well, here's a case where there was some trace evidence, radioactive soil and burn marks and so forth. We'll get to that in a second. Let me um, let me just get to the uh, what's in the box reveal. Again, we lost our box momentarily. We'll be, we'll get it uh, we'll get it back. Don't worry. As I said earlier, I think I, I suspect one of my little guys is using it to store his hockey carts under his bed. <laughs> However, uh, the item has been sitting on my desk uh, since 11 p.m. this evening, and um, let me just go uh, first of all, Albert. What are uh, people uh, guessing on the uh, on the Twitter feed? Okay, uh, Lucy Furious said a key of some sort. Uh, Patricia says it's a snow globe. Kentucky Green Thumb says a small wind-up toy. Uh, Carlsberg says a notepad. Aaron G. says a calculator. And uh, Mike R. says a mirror or a reflective metal. And someone listening last week says a domino. <laughs> that was last week, right? Yeah, Chris. Right. <laughs> Let me go to the uh, live chat from our uh, YouTube channel. City Lights is guessing a toothbrush. L.M. Stewart, an egg beater. Hawk9955 says a bolt. Um, I'm going to mispronounce this name. Y-Y-W-A-I-W-A-I-N-L-A. Uh, um, oh, hang on. I don't, she doesn't offer a guess. She just says the, the box has gone AWOL. Yes, indeed. Someone calling himself George Norrie says it's John Teeter's time machine. And uh, let's see. Who else? Anything else? Um that's about it, I think. Just scrolling down here very quickly. I don't see any other guesses. All right, so it's time for the uh, for the big reveal. It's a clothespin. There you go. <laughs> Was anyone even close on the Twitter feed? Go back and look. I don't think so. Yeah, Didn't no, sound I don't like think it. so. No one close. All right, well, we'll start again next. We'll try it again next week. That's our what's in the box segment. And again, you can uh, guess. Uh, use the hashtag. TCS remote, but we'll uh, put that away for now. All right, back uh, to Nick Redfern. 365 days of UFOs. So May of '67, out in uh, in Manitoba. Uh, tell us about this case. 
Yeah, this is a, an interesting one, uh, Richard. It's sort of one of the, again, like a, a lesser-known one. And uh, occurred just out on a farm just outside of Manitoba, Canada, in uh, in May 67. So it's actually sort of pretty much coming up to its uh, its 50th anniversary shortly. And uh, the event itself, as I said, occurred on this particular um, farm, and it was um, pretty much coming up to midnight when this encounter occurred. And a woman was sat outside um, the porch waiting for her husband to come home and encountered this sort of extremely bright light, which is sort of a reddish-pink colour, um, and it had like a, a bluish light uh, next to it. Uh, but she couldn't tell at first um, exactly what it was because it was sort of the lights were the, the dominating factor. Um, and so we're not really sure what shape the object was because, um, you know, the the object itself was sort of, um, you know, overwhelmed by the, the brightness of the lights. But whatever it was, um, it sort of beamed like a, a bright light down to the ground and and came to the ground itself, landed. Now, the woman, quite understandably, was sort of terrified by, by this and raced into the house, locked the door, etc. And when her husband got home, um, she sort of said, you know, don't go outside, just, you know, let's go out in the morning and have a look. Well, it turns out that when they went out um, the next day into one of the fields, what they found was like a, it was like a half circle uh, of ground that was flattened and that was, was actually burning. In places, it was sort of smoking and smoldering, but in other places, there were sort of um, flames were still um, sort of emanating from the ground. And um, the even the, the, just the fact that about sort of about three weeks later, the area was still smoldering that hadn't sort of gone away which kind of sort of begs the question you know what could have left this particular mark now it obviously wasn't something like a meteorite because it you know it didn't slam into the ground at high speed it was actually flying quite slowly and then deliberately came down in the field adjacent to the farm so um Again, in that sense, you know, it was a definitive UFO. Well, and the other interesting thing, as you point out, in 365 days of UFOs, in this case, uh, it was smoldering despite the fact that there was considerable rain having fallen in the area. And perhaps the real kicker, radioactive soil was found at the site. So, for those who say no trace evidence, whenever there are UFO sightings, there you go. All right, back to uh, more of my conversation with Nick Redfern. 365 days of UFOs, a year of alien encounters. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. You know, I was just scrolling down on the live chat here on our YouTube stream, and um, Hydro to Wheel, Hydro to Wheel actually came pretty close. Uh, they said, I'm not sure if Hydro to Wheel is a, is a he or a she, but uh, they said, Something wooden. And you know what? That's about as close as we've gotten in quite a while. It is something wooden. It was a, a clothespin. So Hydro to Wheel will get in touch, and I'm going to send you out a mug from the uh, Conspiracy Show. Thank you so much. Uh, now I've got to figure out how do we uh, contact Hydro to Wheel through the live chat. I guess I'll get them to uh, send me. Let me just type that in. Send me your email, Addy. Hydro. Okay. Back to uh, Nick Redfern. Uh, you've written uh, entire volumes about men in black, 
And uh, there's a story in the book, I'm not sure the date, I think it goes back to January as well, and this has to do with women in black. Tell me about that. Well, you've actually got several cases of women in black in the book, and it's sort of a a little-known aspect of the the men in black mystery. You know, people think of the men in black, they think of Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith from the movies, you know, but... uh, in most real reports, which the movies were based on, uh, people described the men in black as sort of looking pale and skinny, and they would have these oversized eyes that they would hide behind these wraparound sunglasses, and they'd wear black fedoras and black suits and trench coats with the collars turned up, almost as if they were trying to sort of camouflage their real appearance, which actually comes across as sort of almost like an alien-human hybrid. It sounds bizarre, but that's how they sort of look. And this is how a lot of the women in black are described as well, um, where they, again, sort of very sort of um, very slim, pale, pale skin, almost look completely white skin. And again, they often wear these wraparound sunglasses. Uh, I've got several cases in the book where, for example, people um, had seen... Um, UFOs, there's a, one I talk about in the book from 67, where not unlike the Canadian one we just talked about, where the witness actually lived in an isolated farmhouse in the in New York State and he saw this, one particular day, he saw this uh, typical flying saucer type craft hovering over his property about 30 or 40 feet diameter clearly metallic and then sort of sh- suddenly shot away at high speed now, the very next day, this sort of strange-looking, eerie woman turned up on the front door, and essentially, she she claimed to be um, a gypsy selling items, you know, would, would the man be willing to buy something? But he got this extremely strange vibe from her, because in no time at all, the conversation was turned around to the UFO subject, and had he seen anything unusual in the sky? And he was sort of very reluctant to let her in the house and made his excuses and, and didn't let her in. But he he described her as, you know, sort of looking not entirely human, um, as I said. with the And she even had, like, this long black wig on, which um, was in, like, a style, like, Bangs style. So, you know, it came down, the hair came below her forehead, um, you know, ran by her eyebrows and pulled into the side of her face. So he could he could barely make anything out with the sunglasses on as well, which may have been the point. But um, it was a very weird and almost sort of ominous encounter that, um, you know, sort of really disturbed him when, when this occurred. I'm a sucker for any story involving dead aliens, and there's a number of them in the book. Uh, one goes back to July of 62, uh, although it didn't surface for about 20 years. This, this is uh, somewhere in northern New Mexico. Yeah, well, um, over the years, you know, there have been a lot of reports of, um, you know, UFOs crashing, excuse me, crashing to the ground. The most famous one, obviously, you know, being Roswell. Now, we get re- a lot, there are a lot of reports around the world of crashed UFOs. It, you know, it's not just um, in the United States. Um, but the one you're talking about was from July uh, the 9th, 1962. And this particular case was given to a UFO researcher named Leonard Stringfield, who, who died in 1994. 
But he uh, essentially focused on accounts of crashed UFOs. You know, he didn't really investigate sightings or abductions. That, his main area of interest was, was crashed saucers. And um, he was given this story uh, by a fellow researcher, Tommy Bland. And the story was that, well, he actually came from a, a colonel in the military. And, um, and the story was that, again, sort of like a typical flying saucer type craft, had come down in uh, northern New Mexico in 62, and it was round about 30 feet in diameter and about 12 feet in height. And whatever the object was, it seems to have tried to maneuver, or the pilots had tried to maneuver it into sort of a crash landing rather than, you know, slamming into the ground. And it reportedly skidded along the ground for quite a significant uh, distance. And... Um, Reportedly, some sort of quick reaction military team came out, uh, comprised of about eight, seven or eight people, wearing gas masks and jumpsuits, which suggested, you know, they may have been anticipating some sort of contamination. And reportedly, there were two dead bodies found within the craft and um, placed in some sort of um, military vehicle and taken away. Now, they were reportedly taken to Holloman Air Force Base for study and also to the Los Alamos Laboratories, also in New Mexico, for autopsy. Now, what happened after that, we don't know. But Stringfield, you know, he was a, he was a credible researcher. He was a former military officer. And as was Tommy Bland, he was in the military as well, you know. So we had two credible stories, for the, excuse me, two credible individuals for this story. Speaking of alien bodies, and I don't know if this uh, story is in the uh, in the book. I haven't read all 365 day, uh, 65 entries, but um, we go back to seventy three and uh, Jackie Gleason, who uh, marvelous entertainer, and of course the honeymooners, star of the honeymooners, and he had a real fascination with UFOs uh, and um, supposedly had a huge UFO library. They did. Uh, I think it was donated to the University of Miami. Uh, and was also a pretty um, a staunch Repo- Republican. Eventually, became pretty good friends with Richard Nixon. They were uh, they played golf together, and the story goes that uh, sometime in, uh, in February of '73, Nixon took Gleason to uh, was it Homestead Air Force That's Base right, and yeah. and showed him alien bodies. Uh, is that in the book, by the by? And, and, and what do you make of that story? Mm. Well, it's not in the book, no, but um, it, it is an interesting story, and it's become sort of almost legendary in ufology. And as you pointed out, that you know Jackie Gleason not only being you know a very famous uh, comedian, um, but he had a, he had a massive interest in UFOs. Like, I mean, a very for a comedian, he had an extremely serious interest in ufology and had a a huge library of books and magazines and journals and things like that. And um, the the story is that because he was very close friends with Nixon, as you said, they golfed together, um, that Nixon decided to sort of let Gleason know that, you know, what he was doing wasn't a waste of time, that there was something to it. And the story is that... that, um, Late one night, Nixon got um, Gleason clearance, or the, or the two of them, to um, enter one particular uh, sort of well-guarded section of Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. And the story is that um, Nixon was allowed, or Nixon uh, was able to give uh, Gleason access 
to a, a quick look at these bodies. And uh, apparently, by all accounts, the, the people that Gleason told, the bodies were extremely damaged. They sort of looked almost like old little men. Um, they were sort of preserved in these tanks, and uh, but they were extremely damaged, you know, the kind of damage you would see from like a plane crash, you know, just sort of massive trauma. And ironically, um, whereas, you know, I guess beforehand, Gleason might have, um, you know, been really excited to know what he was going to see. But afterwards, apparently, it was like he was in a state of shock and didn't want to talk about it and was deeply disturbed by what he'd seen. But um, the story actually came out from his wife, Beverly McKittrick, and she uh, went public with this story. Um, but Gleason himself would never comment on it. He just, you know, he, he just totally clammed up, which in itself is interesting. You know, you would think that perhaps if there was something to it, he might have said years later, well, okay, I'll tell you what I saw. But he, he just would not say anything at all. I'm just trying to remember whether uh, Larry Warren, who I've, I've talked to a number of times from the Rendlesham Forest uh, in, UFO incident, whether, did, didn't Warren have contact with Gleason? Didn't Gleason confirm that story to him, or am I misremembering? Yeah, yeah. Larry actually met um, Gleason back in the 80s, and, um, and I think it was on, in relation to a TV show, but I might be wrong. But, but anyway, um, Gleason confirmed basically what he'd also told his wife, you know the, the the essential parts of the story. So, but several people apparently were told this story over the years. But certainly, you know, um, Beverly McKittrick as um, Gleason's wife. You know, um, the media actually picked up on that quite widely. Nick, congratulations! Uh, what is this book number forty? By yeah, my count, yeah. <laughs> forty books. My gosh, uh, that is uh, quite a remarkable accomplishment. Three hundred and sixty-five days of UFOs. A Year of Alien Encounters. Nick, as always, thank you for hanging out. All right. I appreciate it, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Nick Redfern. My thanks to uh, Ian, Ryan, Albert, of course, and all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand-new program. Hope you'll be along for that one. George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe and actress Marina Anderson, uh, the uh, former wife of the late David Carradine, with lots of paranormal Encounters. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
Hello, Belly Flattening Helpline. Hi, is this the number for the free trial of that Belly Flattening Breakthrough Soma Biotics? It is. We're giving away free trials to anyone, male or female, who's over 18 and wants to flatten their belly fast. I heard that Soma Biotics is so effective, it can actually cleanse pounds of sludge from your belly. Is that true? Sure is. Soma Biotics is scientifically formulated with natural ingredients to flatten bloated bellies fast by cleansing pounds of rotting food and toxic sludge from your body. It even combats periodic heartburn and acid reflux, so you'll look and feel great. If your belly flattening results are too dramatic, simply reduce use to every other day. Wow, I'm glad I called. If you're over 18 and want to flatten your belly fast, call now for a free trial of Soma Biotics. 1-800-957-5692. But hurry, call now for details while they're still giving these trials away for free. 1-800-957-5692. If lines are busy, try again. That's 1-800-957-5692. Anyone can create a podcast on the web. In fact, there are millions of them online. But if you want quality Internet talk radio, just remember this address. TalkZone.com. TalkZone is Internet talk radio for planet Earth with talented hosts, great guests, and good conversation. Ready to share your thoughts and ideas with a global audience? Become a TalkZone show host yourself. Learn more at TalkZone.com. Internet talk radio for planet Earth. Talk Zone.